So, Psalm 130. We're in our 11th week of the song, Songs of Ascent. Um, and our summer jams, as Doug so aptly called it the first week, our, our Spotify playlist of songs. Um, we've, we've gotten to see how varied they are. There's a song um, that's included for every person as they journeyed to Jerusalem on the pilgrimage to worship the Lord, they were in many different places. There was a song for the person who felt betrayed, one for those who needed security in their life, one for those to worship in gladness, one for those who needed to remember God's promises towards Israel. And last week, Jacob taught on Psalm 129. It's kind of like a battle cry from a wounded warrior, watching their champion fight on their behalf. Psalm 129 is a song that gives us confidence even after oppression. It's the OSU, Oregon State, fight, fight, fight of the Beaver fan walking back into Reeser even after a really rough first half. Psalm 129 speaks of hardship, but then the psalmist says, his anchor, his, his hope is in the righteousness of God. Claiming God as the champion, that champion that would fight on behalf of Israel. And so as the people journey to Jerusalem, they're being pumped up by Psalm 129, excited for God's righteous, um, a righteous fight for them. And then Psalm 130 starts up. It starts out slow and sad. It's a song of remorse, a song of pleading, one that starts from the depths. And this time, the depths were reached not because of an enemy or foe, but because of our own doing, because of their own doing. This is a song for the honest, the one for the person heading to Jerusalem, knowing they are not worthy. One commentator states it this way, but if this God comes among his people so as to side with them, like Psalm 129 tells us, will not his righteous presence expose and condemn their sin? The righteous God protects his people, but his righteousness, so close at hand, also sheds light on the darkness. It exposes our sin. From this place, the psalmist writes this song <clears throat> and shows what true confession looks like. And this morning, the claim that I'm going to make is that true confession should leave, lead us to believe that God is worth waiting for. So, why is God worth waiting for? Well, I think the psalm uh, tells us in three ways. In verse one through four, it's that forgiveness is his. Why is God worth waiting for? Number two, we can hope in his word verses five and six. And he's worth waiting for because God redeems his chosen, verse seven and eight. So if you would, read verses one through four with me one more time. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, if you're reading the ESV with me, 
you might notice some interesting punctuation. There are three exclamation points in a row, and my English teacher from freshman year would definitely have his red pen out, saying, eh, what are you doing that for? But I would argue with Mr. Sollers in, in this case. The writers, the interpreters of the ESV are really intentional. They're conveying that this is not a place of just rote memory confession. He's desperate. He is distraught. And from the depths, from the valley, the psalmist goes to God. God first and nothing else. Now, sadly, this might not be our experience every time we may be in this place. We don't always go to God with our problems. It's not our first reaction. Sometimes we run away instead, maybe looking for escape in entertainment or work. Maybe we look for comfort in food or the dreaming of what will be better once summer comes or school starts or that project is finished. As we parent our oldest, Micah, Hannah and I, uh, we talk about using words and not our hands a lot, okay? Now, this is a daily, almost minute by minute reminder. Um, he has a little brother who he is much stronger than. Um, and it seems so natural for him to just grab the toy from his brother because he can. It's really easy for him to hit when he's mad. But when he comes first to me and asks for help, he doesn't get the reprimand or the consequence that that grabbing and pushing would have given him. He almost always finds a solution. And if not just a solution, he at least hears praise from me that he didn't hit his brother. He came to his father first. What if, like Micah, we worked on running to our father first? Do we trust that he offers much more comfort than the things of this world? Do we trust that leaning into our problems with God is so much more satisfying than escape? And if nothing else, can we be confident that he is an infinitely better father than I am and will be pleased knowing that we are coming to him before anything else. The psalmist isn't even specific about his problem in these two verses, only that he needs God's mercy. He needs God himself. So in verse three, why is he in the depths? Is it the enemy surrounding him? Like verse 129, is it the enemy that's oppressed him? Is he hemmed on all sides by the wicked? No, verse three clearly states what is on his mind. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And now we think of marking iniquities, um, and maybe that's not as clear to what we'd say today, but the NIV writes it as, it kept a record of sins. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And if we've been honest with ourselves, we've felt this weight of sin before. We've been in this place, and maybe you're there this morning. And I wonder if often we've believed the lie that God does count our sins, that he is keeping a record of our wrongs, that there's some tally up in heaven. 
Who would go to him if this were true? Not too many. It's pretty clear that if he was doing this, the psalmist tells us no one could stand. We'd all be doomed. And Paul reiterates this idea in Romans 3.23 when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The weight of sin should be immense because our sin is infinitely worse than we even give it credit. And God, being righteous, a God that is holy, 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 and set apart, he has all the right to bring a judgment upon us. We deserve death. And as Psalm 129 said, he will, in his righteousness, cut the cord of the wicked. And without Jesus, we are that wicked, those wicked people. He will cut us off. But if this were the end, this would not be a very good psalm, I don't think. It would not be fun. And the truth of the matter is that God uh, does not keep a record of our sin. Verse 4 eliminates a need for us to think on this any longer because of its truth. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Praise God, right? He is worthy of the praise because he will forgive us. I found myself amazed by the fa that fact this week, that going to God in confession for the things that I mess up on again and again and again, as Paul writes, that he does when he does not want to, that he would continue to forgive me, that he would not uh, end his forgiveness towards my sin. God pardons those who trust in him, he is the father who we can run to, knowing that our standing with him will not change. And Christian, we are his children. We have the ultimate father, God himself. And as he lavishes forgiveness upon us, all we need do is confess and trust in him. So, why is God worth waiting for? Because forgiveness is his. He holds the keys to pardon. He is able to wipe away our sins. The psalmist doesn't end there. So why else is God worth waiting for? It's because we can hope in his word. So listen to verses five through six with me. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist has trusted in God's forgiveness, so what's his reaction? He waits on God. And this isn't a twiddling his thumbs waiting. It's not a take out your phone and wait for the doctor to arrive. It's not a read that random magazine on the dentist table. <laughs> no, this is a deep down waiting. He says it. It's his soul. It's deep. His soul waits. And why would the psalmist be so expectant? Why would he eagerly await God? Well, he says it right after that because he has hope in his word. The words of God are where hope can lie. God's made claims and promises, and he's backed those up with action. We can trust God's promises because they haven't been broken. We can take him at his word. I think there's a luxury we have taken for granted in having access to this Bible that we know God. 
we have the very words of God in our hands and we can learn so much about him and his nature through these words. I'm not sure if I've had the conversation with a fellow Christian who was sorry for reading it more often. I actually have experience in the last week of hearing a friend state that they have felt so more connection with God because of being in his word. The Bible is trustworthy because the words contain the very nature of his God and his promises to us. Knowing our Bible better shouldn't make us uh, only a scholar, but hopefully it shapes and molds us into people who love better, who listen better, who are more confident in what God says. Why is God worth waiting for? Because we can have hope in his word. And the hope that we can put in his word is not just merely a wish. I think we need to make sure that we know what this word hope actually is. Um, Because in our lives today, we normally express an uncertainty when we say hope. I hope the Blazers win. Yeah, go Blazers. I hope I get that job. I hope I pass the test. It speaks to something that might be in the future. We wish for the outcome that we want, but biblical hope is said in confidence. There is certainty when we say we hope what God says will come to pass, because it will come to pass. God has shown this by keeping his promises already. And when you read stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know that God would lead his people exactly where he said he would. And that when we read about Jesus fulfilling all the laws and prophets, we can see that God is meticulous and intentional behind his actions. He's never idly said he would do something. No, he knows what he will do. When God says something will happen, we have assurance that it will be as he says. So our hope is in his word, So our hope in his word is no wish, but a confidence. The psalmist says it best when he goes on to write that he waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Now, a watchman knows morning is coming, right? There's there's a specific time. Sun will rise. And even today, we can just look on our phone and see when the sunrise will happen on March 14th next year. The sun has always come up. But we know that God is more reliant than even the sun. The psalmist says that God can be waited for more than watchmen wait for the morning. Now, as I'm writing this, I think of the two towers. Oh my goodness. Anyone know what I'm saying? The battle of Helm's Deep, right? Before they go off, Gandalf is goes on a mysterious journey and he says, hey, look to the sunrise on the fifth day. And the Battle of Helm's Deep in the movie is, I think, one of the best scenes that they, they did. It's amazing. There is so much fear that the enemy is going to win. They are, they are destroying even elves. Ah! But what happens when all is lost and Aragorn is trying to chop down another orc. Gandalf, with the rising sun, comes down with a whole army of riders, and they just crush the enemy. 
doesn't this picture depict our own battles with sin? The enemy in this psalm is our own sin. And often we find ourselves in a place where the battle is is lost. It feels lost. And yet we can hope that God's mercies are new every morning. He will go to battle against our sin. And our sin being infinitely greater than we can imagine pales in comparison to the infinite mercy and grace of our God. So why is God worth waiting for? Because we can be confident in what God says is true. We have hope in his word. And in the last two verses, the psalmist continues to tell us why he's worth waiting for, and it's because he redeems his chosen. So let's read verses seven and eight one more time. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist tells God's people to put their confidence in the Lord. But why? Well, because that's where love and redemption are found. What a statement for someone who's crying out for mercy just a few sentences before. That he would yell out, cry out in depths, and then a few moments later state that the hope of God is in his love and redemption. The confidence that we have in God shouldn't stop us from understanding the weight of our sin, but it also shouldn't stop us from knowing how great a pardon we have. When reading these verses, I think the word redemption and redeem can easily be misunderstood, or at least isn't fully grasped, because we often think of it as saving ourselves, or that we are saved from sin, which is true. But the word save is uh, kind of oversimplifying the point of redemption. To be redeemed means to be bought. It means for someone to gain or regain possession of something by payment or clearing away of debt. And there's no way to speak any longer of these truths without mentioning what Christ has done for us. The psalmist speaks often of forgiveness, redemption, and love, and these attributes These attributes were very much a part of God even then. But on this side of the cross, God's nature is revealed all the more through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Jesus Christ. So I read uh, a part of this section before in Romans chapter 3, but Paul sums it up a lot more clearly than I can um, in a few verses in chapter 3. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God redeemed a people, his church, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are given forgiveness of our sins because he paid for sin, the penalty being death. He died on the cross on our behalf, 
We are given the gift of pardon, not just because God looks the other way. No, God looks to Jesus. He sees the death, and it is counted enough to pay for our sins. Paul also writes in Corinthians, for our sake he, the Father, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is just to forgive because he didn't just put our sins to the side. No, he dealt with our sin by sending one who would live a perfect life, the life we were meant to live and could not. He died the death that was destined for us. So why is God worth waiting for? Because God would send his son to die on a cross in order to save his people. He redeems his chosen. But I think, I think if I ended here, I would be doing a disservice to this psalm. The psalmist shows throughout his song that God is worth waiting for. But in verses five and six, he doesn't say, I wait for the forgiveness of the Lord. I wait for the redemption of the Lord. And what's great is we don't have to wait either. If we trust in Jesus Christ, we have those things. Those are a gift to us now. We have forgiveness and redemption. The psalmist waits on God. And the true point is that all the gifts of God, give, that, that all the gifts God gives are for his glory and for our good. It is a pursuit of relationship. So if we go back to verse four, it says, with you, but with you there is forgiveness. And he doesn't stop there. What, what purpose are we forgiven for? So that you may be feared. That God would be feared. A commentator, Derek Kidner, wrote this. But verse four is notable, too, for its second line. That thou mayest be feared. Which may sound a strange outcome for forgiveness. But in reality, the true sense of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is dispelling any doubt that it means reverence and implies relationship. Why have forgiveness at all? Why be redeemed? So that we may fear the Lord. And the NIV says it this way. It says, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Our service and his kingship is lived out for his glory and our good. In the book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? Michael Reeves states that fear is the best word to use in these circumstances because it evokes the idea of trembling. Now, trembling and fear often means that we're afraid and we're gonna hightail it and run. But in the Old Testament, fear is almost always used towards God when knowing his gifts, when knowing the goodness of God. And so we tremble in awe that an infinite God would think of us at all, let alone forgive him or forgive us. And so we serve him. We serve our king. God's forgiveness of his people is part of the redemption plan he reveals to John in Revelation. It speaks of a city coming down where we live not needing a son 
because the presence of God is there. And in Revelation 21.3, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The good news of Jesus Christ is in forgiveness, redemption, and there is a hope that, that, it, that is confident in God's word. And yet we worship God, not the gifts he gives. We are blessed by those gifts. We are brought out of slavery to sin by those gifts. We can be confident in our salvation because of those gifts. And yet, that salvation, that blessing, and our freedom put us in right relationship with our God. So we worship him. Yes, because of what he's done, but more so because of who he is. God himself is worth waiting for. Pray with me. Lord, we come to you knowing the goodness that you give us, the good gifts that we, that we receive. And God, we couldn't stand before you without those good gifts, but you make a way for us to be in your presence. The scandalous idea that we could be forgiven and that you would send your son on our behalf is something that hopefully brings us to our knees in worship of you, God. That we would live a life learning more and more about the God who is worthy to be praised. Amen.